My name is Pastor Eric, a pastor of student ministries here at Faith, and I appreciate the opportunity to come and lead us in our time of studying God's Word this morning. I'm eager to see how God is going to guide us. So uh, as we start off, would you mind, I would love to pray for us and ask for God's blessing on this moment. Father, we come to you this morning uh, after a busy week, perhaps for some, a week that might have been filled with trials or challenges, maybe also things that were great and a blessing from you. And Father, whatever our state this morning, Lord, I pray that we would uh, be able to allow you to work through us here this morning, that our hearts and our minds would be open to hearing from your word, that we would be able to shut out and to block out the distractions to sit at your feet, to worship you as we hear your word and as we seek to understand it and apply that to our lives. So we ask for your blessing this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, for the past two weeks, Pastor Brian has led us through a study of the scriptures uh, with a focus on a theme of delighting in the word. And I've appreciated him leading us through those weeks. Um, Encouraging us to allow God's word to be the still point for our lives in a very crazy, chaotic world that we live and the lives that we live. Well, this morning I'd like to follow a similar vein of thought that Brian led us on for those two weeks. And by exploring a time of some extended teaching that Jesus had with his disciples. It's the final night before he was going to be betrayed. And as he wanted to do, he wanted to spend that with his disciples, and he broke bread with them and for the final time, and, and taught and modeled some important truths that he wanted his disciples to understand. Much of this conversation is what is known as the Upper Room Discourse, and you can find it in John chapters 13 through 17. Uh, it starts with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, and it ends with him in an extended time of prayer. The emphasis on this whole section of scripture is how to live as a disciple in the world without losing the joy and the love and the power that we have available to us through the Spirit. But we're going to focus just on one small part of that conversation and discussion this morning, and that is found in John chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles and would like to open those, John 15 verses 1 through 8 is going to be our focus, and I'd love to read that for us this morning, just as our basis as we get started. So John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
Well, as we come to this passage this morning, I want to step back for just a minute and highlight a couple of things that I think are going to set the stage for us to better understand uh, this interaction that Jesus has and the truth that he was trying to communicate both to his disciples, but also to us. First of all, we know that Jesus knows his audience. Being the expert teacher that he is, he always knows the best way to communicate the truth that he wants to share about himself and about the kingdom. In this case, he's chosen to use the word picture of a vine, which happened to be a metaphor that the Jewish people in those days were very familiar with. Because when they heard Jesus speak about the vine, they would have recalled how they, as the nation of Israel, were also described as a vine. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, actually highlights, among other places in Scripture, where Israel is referred to the vine. In verse 7 of that chapter, just as a sampling, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. God's initial intent was that the nation of Israel would be that vine. And now Jesus is coming and saying he is the true vine. Well, if they did remember that, they would have remembered that seeing the large vine that was hanging over the entrance to Herod's temple, adorned in gold. Some estimates have that particular vine estimated at over $12 million in value. They also saw vines on their coinage. The idea here is that the visual and the imagery of a vine was a very common and well-known symbol of their day. But now that Jesus had their attention, he was speaking to them using images and word pictures that they were familiar with. What is it that he was trying to communicate? What was it that he was trying to say? Well, I think one of the things that he was trying to communicate to them was this. That God is the gardener. That God is the gardener. This is interesting that he says this, because if you were to study all seven of the I am statements that are recorded in the book of John, this is the only time in those seven statements in which Jesus explicitly references his Father and the role that he has in the process of salvation. He says in verse 1, My Father is the gardener. Now why would Jesus start off by identifying and specifically mentioning that his Father is the gardener? I believe it's for us to see some of the different roles that the Father has in this process of salvation. I imagine many of you may have experience in gardening. Um, Perhaps many of you would consider yourself a gardener. Um, Growing up, I was exposed to gardening um, quite often. My dad is a heavy gardener. Um, Actually, he is here this morning uh, with his wife, Pauline. Um, So you can talk to him about any gardening tips um, that you have. But uh, I grew up, and the entire length of our backyard um, was our garden. Um, our garden reached maybe from here all the way to that last pew in the back of the sanctuary. And as a kid, uh, this size of our garden kind of posed problems at times. You could imagine whenever my older brother and I, we would go out and we would play wiffle ball or kickball in the backyard... Um, The garden was just to the right side of our playing field. And although a lot of that space was considered foul territory, um, first base butted up right against the edge of our garden. And then, of course, 
the extended way out into right field. And I know some gardens may be fenced in. Um, our separation between the garden and the dirt and the grassy field uh, was nothing but railroad ties. And as the summer went on and the plants and the foliage continued to grow, the space that we had to safely hit the ball and to play shrunk. And as older brothers used situations like this to their advantage, my brother was no different. And uh, whenever we played, he would always somehow manage to get the ball into the right field area and begin laughing as he rounded the bases and coming home as I tried to carefully tiptoe into the garden to retrieve the ball and not to step on any of my dad's plants. You could say we kind of, almost kind of we had like our own little Wrigley Field Ivy area, you know? Because we knew that as soon as that ball got hit into the garden, it was pretty much a lost cause. Just like at Wrigley, if a ball goes in the ivy, it's pretty much gone. But every year, my dad, he would, he would choose to plant everything from peas to tomatoes to potatoes and onions and, and green beans. And man, one summer I even remember he tried making popcorn, growing popcorn in the garden. My dad loves his garden. And it wasn't uncommon for him. He would come home from a full day of work and he would change and grab a quick bite to eat, put on the work boots and he would head back out and he would work in the garden for a couple more hours, either until the sunset or the army of mosquitoes chased him away. But in tending his garden, my dad would do everything that a master gardener would do. He would till the soil. He would plant the seeds. He would water the plants. He would pull the weeds. He'd even, at times, rig up his own booby traps to capture the rabbits that would somehow always find a way into the garden fishing for his carrots. I'm happy to report, if you want to know, the, uh, some of those rabbits made it home back to their nest that night. Uh, others maybe weren't so fortunate. But, uh, but in the end, my dad would always harvest his crops. Notice I always said, he did these things, because despite my dad's best efforts to help me understand, the, appreciate the, the art of gardening and the joy of gardening, uh, those genes didn't really get passed down to me. A few years ago, I took this picture of our small garden at our home in the backyard of our house. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Bunch of weeds. But the purpose that my dad had in all of his vegetable growing was to produce mature, healthy, fruit-bearing plants. And when the fruit of his planting was produced, he was a happy man. And he had happy kids. I mean, how many of you remember there's nothing greater than a kid as you running out into the garden garden and grabbing a little pea pod off the off the plant, cracking that pea pod open, and then running your finger underneath and sliding it all along and popping up all those peas and then throwing them in your mouth. How many of you guys have done that as a kid? Come on, it's it's okay, you can confess. Yes, right? There's nothing that beats that fun moment as a kid. Just as my dad's goal was to produce mature, healthy, fruit-bearing produce in his physical garden, I believe that God's greatest desire and passion is to produce mature, healthy, fruit-bearing disciples on a spiritual level. So much so that Jesus later on, he says in verse 8 
of this chapter. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. It brings the Father glory when fruit is produced. He has joy and pleasure in seeing fruit. What kind of fruits are you referring to? Well, Galatians 5 gives us a list. But the fruit of the joy, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul also prays in Colossians 1.10 that the believers would live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. And any gardener will tell you that whenever you have a really good harvest with a lot of fruit, it's quickly noticed by other people. There was a number of times when I would witness my neighbors leaning over the backyard fence on a nice, cool, brisk autumn evening, eyeing my dad's tomato plants and envious of how he could grow such good produce. The secret was burpy big boy tomatoes. Right, Dad? That's, that's, that was the plants, the burpy big boys. Always got to get the big boys. Or perhaps we would have, a, we would have a, a, a surplus of vegetables from the garden. We'd take them out to our church and we would put them on our little produce table for others to share and to take. And he would always get rave reviews and questions would come back to him. How do you make your tomatoes so luscious and full and red and juicy? He got a good share of praise and glory for growing his produce. But how much more on a spiritual level, as we bear fruit in our lives... Will others notice that? And they'll be attracted to that. And when that happens, we have the opportunity to express back to them the source of that fruit and redirect the purpose and the focus back to the master gardener and the relationship that we have with him and giving him the praise and the glory for that. But God's desire is that we become mature, healthy disciples that bear fruit. And he finds pleasure when we're growing and maturing in him. But we also see another role that the gardener has, and that is this. He cuts and prunes. Verse 2, it says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You combine this with verse 6 later on, and it leads some to have questions. Does this verse communicate the idea that we can at one point be in Christ and then be cut off from Christ? In other words, can we lose our salvation? I'm assure you that we at Faith Bible, we believe that once you are a follower of Christ, your salvation is eternal and secure. Once Christ is in you, you cannot lose your salvation. In fact, Jesus goes to great lengths, two different occasions, just here in the book of John, that emphasize that your salvation is something you can't lose. John 6.37 says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. John 10.27-29 offers another, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So what is this verse saying then? Many take the position that it's referring to one who claims to be a believer but hasn't truly put their faith and trust in Christ. Maybe they're ones that are just going through the motions. They're superficial. They play the part, play the role, but they haven't truly put their faith and trust in Him. 
And because they haven't done that, they're not able to bear fruit because they're not connected to the vine. Others understand it to be those who may truly be believers but are choosing not to abide in the vine or not to abide in Christ. And therefore, they're not bearing any fruit. So for those people, the Lord chooses to discipline them because of that. Both views have validity to them. But despite and regardless of those different views, the truth that Jesus is communicating here and that we need to take to heart is this. Fruitless branches are useless and aren't helpful in accomplishing the goals that the gardener has for us to produce and create healthy, mature, fruit-bearing trees. For those branches that aren't producing fruit, God sees them as useless and he tosses them to the side. But this verse also shows us that God, the gardener, is one who prunes the branches. Well, if you're familiar at all with pruning, you know that the purpose of pruning is to help something grow larger, to be able to produce more fruit. The end result is growth. And although it hurts, the end result is what we're striving for. So I pause here and I ask, are you being pruned right now? Is God the gardener in the process of doing some trimming in your life? You know, we all have times of trial or stress or uncertainty. We all experience a level of discomfort, challenge. Sometimes we're pruned by things that are small and other times things that are big. What might you be going through right now when you think is going to be the end of you, but in actuality God may be using to produce greater fruit for his glory? Well, Jesus also used this passage to describe himself as the true vine. Verse 1, he says, I'm the true vine. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, I find it interesting to note what Jesus does not say in this verse. He does not say, I am a vine. I am not one of many vines. I'm... I'm the right vine for you if you feel like it's a good fit. But if tomorrow that changes, that's okay. No, Jesus says, I am the vine. It's exclusive. He's, he's unique. He stands apart from anything else. And he's saying that in me and only in me can you really truly find life. In essence, he's saying, you know what? Try all you want to find life apart from me. Take your best shot. If you want to try to connect yourself to your job, to your family, to your kids, to your grandkids, to your finances, to your possessions, to your retirement, go for it. But none of these things are going to be able to offer the source of life that I can. So remember, I'm the master gardener. I created you. I know what you need. I also know that I need you need to abide in me to get the life and the nutrients that you need to survive. You know, because of our sinful nature, in a sense, we've all been ripped away from our Father and that initial relationship that we had. And so in order to be back in relationship with Him, we need to be grafted back into the vine. And given my lack of gardening genes, as I confessed earlier, I really didn't know about the grafting process until somebody took the time and explained it to me. It's important to realize when you're dealing with grafting that it's actually an art form. It's really difficult to do if you don't know what you're doing. And if you do it too fast or you don't do it quite right, 
the graft won't really take. But when you do the grafting process, you need to first start off with a really hardy rootstock. A hardy rootstock that's vigorous and that's full of life and energy in the stem. Then you need to choose a branch. And typically when people are grafting, they choose a branch from a weaker life-giving tree that isn't able to produce as much fruit on its own. Professionals typically graft only when they want to create a new hybrid plant. In other words, a new creation of sorts. A type of plant that will be able to survive, and not just survive, but to thrive in a very specific kind of environment. Something that's stronger and has more energy and fruit than the original. So what happens is you will take your, your weaker branch and you cut it off from the tree and you begin to trim off any of the leaves that you see on that branch, leaving only little nubs, which will ultimately produce more fruit. Once you snap off and trim off the branches, you begin to then whittle off the end of that branch into a point, exposing the inside of the branch. At the same time as you do that, you also go back to your rootstock and you cut right down through the center of your rootstock, deep. And then you take the weaker branch and you put it inside, in the middle, deep down into the rootstock and you wrap it with tape. What you have is a very personal, intimate bond that begins to be formed between the branch and the rootstock. And as time goes on, the beginning of this branch and this rootstock, the the branch begins to slowly begin to receive the nutrients and the energy and the life from the rootstock. And more and more as days go on and weeks go on, more and more of that energy and that life becomes indwelled into the branch. And before you know it, the branch is completely hidden in the rootstock. And fruit is produced and a new species is born. Can you see the power of this word picture that Jesus is communicating to his disciples? This idea of being grafted back into the vine reflects the desire and the relationship that he has for us with him. He calls us his branches, which means that just as that branch was whittled down to a point in order for it to be put into the rootstock, in a sense, the branch was being wounded, you and I also have an open wound. But here's the interesting thing. In order to be grafted into Jesus' strong tree, you and I need to come to him with our wounds open and exposed. We need to be able to humbly admit that we're wounded. We need help. We need a Savior. We've sinned. 
we have fallen short of what God expects of us. We need to acknowledge also that there's times when we walk around feeling defeated or overcome by guilt or fear or anxiety. Or we allow the lies of the world or, or the, the pressures of the messages from the media or others to define who we are. We walk around wounded with all these things. But if we're honest, we don't really want anybody to know that. Sometimes we don't even want to acknowledge it ourselves. But yet, when we choose to recognize and acknowledge that open wound, we make grafting into the vine possible. It's that open wound that makes it possible for us to receive the life of the vine and begin to bear fruit. In fact, can I propose to you the, a different perspective on the wounds that we have and our pain? That it can actually be a gift or an invitation to join ourselves into the vine and when we do so, to be able to receive that life-giving healing that only the vine can do and that we so desperately need. So it prompts me to ask each of us the question, are you and I walking around with wounds in our lives right now? Are you and I searching for a way for them to be healed? I want to invite you to place your branch, your life in the vine, the true vine, the place where only there you will be able to receive the healing and the life that you need. Notice also that the graft requires time to take. You know, it's not instantaneous. Sometimes it's a very slow process. And I think how similar is that to how long it takes us as believers to fully grow and become part of who Jesus is and what he wants for us. It's the process of sanctification. It's this lifelong process of us becoming more and more conformed and relying on that life that Jesus has for us. Now, true, we once we choose to put our faith and trust in Christ, we're given that new life. We are justified. We are made righteous and holy in his sight. But the process of transforming our everyday thoughts and our emotions and our, our attitudes and our actions, it's a lifelong process, and it takes time. Just like the branch in that root begins to experience and have that life-giving power flow into its branch, so you and I begin to have the life that Jesus offers us flowing into us. Paul writes in Philippians, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, not only do we see that we need to come to Him acknowledging our wounds and that a graft takes time to fully take we also see that the fruit can only come about by being and remaining connected in the vine. You know, a fruit tree doesn't sit around one day and say, oh, I'm going to try to produce fruit and try to pop it out. That'd be kind of foolish for us to think that that would happen, right? And yet, how often do we in our own Christian lives sometimes live that way? I'm going to try and be more loving. I'm going to, I'm going to try to be more forgiving. I'm going to try to share my faith this week with my coworker. We're all so often we're told to try this and try that and apply this fruit to our lives as if we can just take and grab the fruit and duct tape it to our soul. And yet, as I read these verses, what God, God doesn't want us to try. God wants us to abide. Instead of trying to work to attach the fruit to our bodies, He wants us to attach ourselves to the vine. 
The fruit comes only because of who we're attracted and attached to. A well-known missionary, Hudson Taylor, he once said, The branch of the vine does not worry and toil and rush here to seek for sunshine and there to find rain. No, it rests in union and communion with the vine. At just the right time and in the right way, there is the right fruit found on it. Let us so abide in the Lord Jesus. Isn't that a great challenge for us? The challenge for us is to abide. But how do we do that? How do we abide? Well, first, I think we need to make sure that we've begun that relationship with God and we've been grafted in. 1 John 4.15 says that if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. We need to put our faith and trust in Him. And if you haven't done that personally, I want to encourage you to make that your first step. But once that decision has been made, I believe our next response is linked to a phrase that Jesus uses in verse 7. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. You know, many of us have a regular time with God. We maybe call it our devotional time or our quiet time or, or whatever it is. But it's the habit or the discipline of studying God's word and spending time in prayer. It's when we allow God's word to speak to us, to remind us of who he is and the truth that it contains and the guidance that it can give us for our lives. It fills us up with that life like the vine does to the branch. And it's a wonderful thing. I, I can't affirm that enough that we do that. To reference Pastor Brian's comments from last week, we find delight when we make God's word the still point of our lives. Well... That must be easy for you, Pastor Eric. You, you and all the other pastors, you know, you, to dwell on the riches of God's Word. I mean, you know, you guys are at church all week long and you're kind of removed from the daily challenges and the struggles that you have in life. And man, it must be great. You know, it's, how fantastic it must be just to sit and dwell in the presence of God's Word on a daily basis. Can I be real with you for a minute? This past week has been a pretty emotional week for me, more than normal, <laughs> more than most. Well, thanks to the presence of social media, uh, I became aware Tuesday afternoon of a good friend of mine from college, Brad, who recently, uh, suddenly actually, um, just lost his mom at a pretty young age. Brad was not only one of my groomsmen in my wedding when we got married, but He's someone that I interacted with on a very deep personal level, uh, obviously through college and many things that we did there. But after college, he went off to serve as a missionary for a number of years at the Hopi Reservation in Arizona in a desire to reach students and teenagers with the gospel in a very dark, desolate place. And it was through our connection that uh, the church that we were serving at, that I was serving at, uh, we were able to take our youth group and our students down to the Hopi Reservation a couple of times and begin to help equip and build him and his team to develop a student ministry outreach and discipleship program. We laughed together a lot through our years of college. We cried together. We even took girls out on double dates together. And despite the fact that he was born and raised in New York and New Jersey area and a deep lover of the Yankees, <laughs> I love him even deeper as a brother. And he's someone that I would go to the mat for any day. 
Maybe you have someone like that in your own life. I met his mom a couple of times on occasion in college as they would come to visit, and I could see this close bond that he had with his mom and how much she meant to him, and also how much she had invested in his life, not just with his physical needs, but also his spiritual development and his growth. So when I heard this news on Tuesday afternoon, as I looked on Facebook and I see that he's posting these pictures and these memories of his mom, it hit me hard, like someone just punched me in the gut. And I realized that not only was I grieving for my friend's sudden loss of his mom at a young age, but I was also grieving my own loss, again, as I lost my mom at a relatively young age as well. So I picked up my phone later that day and I sent him a text message. And I said, Brad, I have no words for you right now. But I stand with you as one who has also lost their mom at a young age. And I said, Brad, first of all, be assured of God's ferocious, ridiculous, crazy, unrelenting love for you and your family right now. And I said, Brad, you also need to know that there are many who are standing behind you in support of you and your family as you go through this week and as you work through these sudden emotions and reactions and thoughts and planning that you need to do. And ultimately I said, Brad, party it up and praise and give glory to God for the internal security that we have in Christ and the hope that we have because of the gospel And the fact that your mom is there right now enjoying the presence of Jesus. And then I shared with him these verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. I had read these the night before my mom died. And I had the chance to share these at her funeral. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I sent those verses to minister to him. And what I found these same verses were ministering to me. And I began to weep. I began to weep because as I was reflecting on these verses, I was reflecting on the living hope that we have in Christ. And this inexpressible and glorious joy that's available to us. It's the salvation of our souls. It's times like this when you begin to see the power of God's word and what can happen when God's word remains in you and you in it. We have this inexpressible and glorious joy to share with others. But how often do we move from this personal quiet time that we often have in God's Word and and then we transition into this crazy, chaotic, and busy, and stressful time? 
few minutes into your day, you realize your kids start whining and fighting. And your patience is wearing thin as a parent. You're running out of the house late to work. You think you're going to be late and you don't understand why the person who's driving in front of you doesn't understand that and why they're driving so slow this morning. How easy is it to become insecure or anxious or even lash out at others because we allow ourselves to be distracted from remaining in the vine? So the call comes for us to maintain or remain in Him all day long. Well, last fall in our student ministry in our junior high and our senior high students, we were talking about the importance of ministering and and nurturing ourselves in God's Word. And one particular night, we gave a challenge to our students, a three-part challenge for them to choose one of these parts. One of the parts was to sign up for a daily scripture text message that would be shot straight to their phones at 7 a.m. every morning for 30 days. They could sign up for that, or they could view the image on our one of our social media pages. Another challenge they could take was to read a section of Psalm 119, just like Pastor Brian has challenged us to do, for 22 days, 22 sections, 22 days, one a day. Or find another passage or a plan and get into God's Word on their own. And I believe in the power of God's Word, and I believe what it can do when we allow it to impact and penetrate our life. And my hope and my goal was that our students would be able to see how relevant God's Word is in their own situation, in their lives, and to train them to plant their heart and their mind in God's Word so they can see a different perspective on the situations that they face. Well, one day this verse got sent out, 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Another day, Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. The Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, in the weeks that followed as we were going through this, students had the opportunity during their cell group time to share verses or passages that were meaningful to them or that's helped encourage them. And some of them highlighted how a specific verse from this challenge spoke to them on a very particular day in a very particular situation. And what was exciting to see is how as those were shared in that cell group amongst their peers and their adult leaders, God's word continued to go out and to see the power that it can have in someone's life. What about you? Are you allowing God's word to fill your thoughts throughout the day? How are you doing that? Are there passages or verses that the Lord has brought to your mind lately? Perhaps you've dug deeper into the Psalm 119 passage that Pastor Brian shared with us. And you've seen firsthand the power of God's Word. How are you allowing God's Word not just to fill your head with more knowledge, but allowing it to transform your heart and how you choose to live? This is the still point that we need to remain in, in the midst of a very busy, crazy world and busy, crazy lives that we have. Author and pastor Derwin Gray said this, the dominant thought in our minds will shape our hearts, and our heart will direct our actions. I want to challenge you to take God's word, to meditate on it, and allow the truth of his word to transform your heart and help us abide in the vine. True, lasting fruit can only come about by being and remaining connected in the vine and allowing his words to remain in us. Let's commit 
to being mature, healthy, fruit-bearing disciples. Father, thank you for our time this morning. As we've been challenged through your word as the truth of what it means to abide in you and abide in the vine. Lord, we admit that we fall short and we are tempted to take things in our own control in our own way. But we ask for your courage and your strength to remain in the vine and allow your word to take root in our hearts and to transform us as it impacts the way we choose to live and interact with others. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor. Amen.